0: Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today on episode number 97, my guest is Susan Pierce Thompson, who is a psychology professor with a PhD in brain and cognitive sciences. And she teaches a college course on the psychology of eating. And she's also taken that course into the public domain and she calls it bright line eating. And this is not going to be an academic Conversation. Although we do look at a lot of research, uh, Susan is really interested in the science of food addiction, of overeating, and notes that there's a lot less of it than we probably think and a lot less than we would like. Um, We'll hear from Susan about her early years, about her becoming an addict at the age of 14 to drugs, how after six years she got clean and sober, but that didn't solve her food addiction problems. And we hear about her lifelong struggles with food and the system that she learned and has since refined, modified, and brought to share with many other people. If you're in the plant-based community, you might have heard that If you just eat a plant-based diet, you don't have to worry about your weight anymore. It just naturally becomes where it's supposed to be. And for some people, that's true. For some people, it's sort of true. And for some people, it's patently not true. And Susan's approach really works for people for whom it's simply not true, where they can overeat on broccoli and rice, on dates and nuts, on things that would be acceptable in pretty much any whole food plant-based diet, people still can't regulate the amounts they eat, the times they eat, the frequency, and they are not able to lose weight. And so if you are what Susan calls a highly susceptible person, if you think about food all the time, if you tend to overeat, even when your stomach is full, your brain keeps wanting more, and if you have kind of a... uh, a torturous relationship with food, where it's just taking up way more of your day and of your life and of your focus than you think is healthy, then this will be a very important interview for you. So without further ado, Susan Pierce Thompson, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you.
0: Yeah, I have been excited for this interview since I started hearing about you from from several people whom I'm on their mailing list and I started kind of getting a rat a tat tat on my uh, on my radar screen. I hadn't heard of you earlier, but I started looking into your work, reading your blog posts, getting your free reports, seeing your emails, and it has changed the way I think about food. Just not I haven't even like, you know, become a client or 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 bought your <laughs> Your course, this is just the free stuff, and my head is already spinning. So I want want to thank you for that.
1: Well, I want to thank you because that's quite a compliment. I mean, you know a lot about food and from a genre that I tremendously respect, even sort of respect slash revere. So the idea that the stuff that I'm putting out there could have changed the way you think about food actually kind of makes my head spin a little bit. That's really...
0: Uh, very flattering to hear and exciting to hear, frankly. So that's, that's awesome. Wow. Cool. So, so, so let's get into it. I have so many questions. So many of the things you say resonate and feel right. And a whole bunch of them, I find myself resisting to some extent. And so I'm always suspicious of my resistance. (laughs) Because some. Right. You, I mean, I, you, that. Usually, you know, the stuff I don't want to look at is usually the stuff that I need to look at. Um, but let's let's just start with the with the the kind of the basic overview of of what you do and where you've arrived in terms of your your contribution to helping people eat well. Okay. So, do you have a question
1: about that, or do you want me to just like? Start from the my like my story, the beginning of my story, or do you want me to go with that?
0: Yeah, sorry. Let's 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 start with just like you know your your elevator pitch about like what you do right now and how you how you think about it.
1: Okay, so my elevator pitch is you know if I'm standing in an elevator and someone says, "Hi, I'm Joe," you know I work for Staples. What do you do? Um, That's always a tough question to answer uh, like that. But what I say is. Um, I teach people how their brain blocks them from losing weight, and usually that gets some kind of a raised eyebrow and maybe some kind of follow up question to which I say something like, "Well, I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a I'm a I'm a tenured psychology professor," and um, and people come to me with help um, for help losing weight and um, changing their relationship with food. And, you know, I teach the psychology of eating, and my Ph.D. is in brain and cognitive sciences, and, um, and then I maybe glibly say something totally cocky like, you know, I can get anybody skinny, huh.
0: um,
1: and I chuckle, or something like that. Um, that's often how that goes.
0: Cool. So so that's kind of how I was introduced to you by these emails. And frankly, I trashed the first several of them, because I had a picture (laughs) in in my head that I knew what you were up to. And I knew what you were about. And I'd heard it before. And it wasn't going to be that interesting. And Uh it was it was only like several people really said, hey, this is different that made me start to pay attention. And Mm -hmm. so I guess what one of the the things that really started getting me thinking that you were, you were onto something is an idea that you know I, I would call sort of you know one size does not fit all in that there are we have different different people have different brains and different relationships with food and if you if you're just trying to copy someone else and you have a kind of a different brain relationship with food you're going to fail. Could you talk a little bit about I guess you call it the susceptibility scale, how you first kind of came upon that concept and what it means.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the susceptibility scale is really foundational to how I think about um, people's relationship with food and how I help people. You know, I'm always wondering where people are on the susceptibility scale in order to tailor my advice to them, my feedback to them. So in a nutshell, the susceptibility scale is, I think of it as a continuum from maybe 1 to 10 or 0 to 10 or something like that, that measures how susceptible specific people are to the addictive properties of refined foods, like the pull of refined foods. And so someone who is on the high end, like a 9 or a 10 on the susceptibility scale, experiences profound cravings for food and um, probably obsesses about food or thinks about food a lot, plans what they're going to eat, thinks about their next meal a lot, um, maybe spends a lot of time worrying about or thinking about what they have or haven't eaten, whether they're on or off their plan. Um, they are likely to experience um eating and um not feeling satisfied, like wanting to eat more. Maybe even eating to the point where the stomach is screaming, I'm full and the brain is saying, Yeah, but I don't want to stop eating yet. Like the mouth is wanting more, even though the, the like the body cavity is clearly full. Um, that's not enough to make them stop eating. Oh so i am am a I'm a ten on this scale, so I'll say me, stop eating. Um, and so they experience not feeling satiated with food, and and also a feeling of, um, from time to time, or maybe even very frequently, feeling out of control with their eating. So, saying, I'm just going to have one, and then have them watching themselves have three, or I'm not going to eat any of that today, and then, and then deciding later on to change the rules and have some anyway, or I'm going to stop eating these foods and not being able to do it. So, um... That's the profile of someone who's high on the susceptibility scale. And then on the other end of the scale, there's people who are on the low end, a one, a two, or a three, and they um, tend not to think about food very much. You know, their body screams at them, hey, I'm hungry, and they go, oh, right, I got to eat something, and they sit down and eat something, and, you know, they eat a little bit, they eat enough to feel satisfied, but satisfaction quickly sets in, and um, along with satisfaction comes an immediate loss of interest in food, you know, or some kind of rational decision to, like, you know, that's probably enough. I think I'll save this for later. This would probably be good if I boxed it up, and I'll have it later. They don't frequently experience uh, being out of control with their eating, and they don't obsess about food. They're not thinking about it a lot in between times. And, you know, then there's people in the middle who, you know, maybe relate to some degree to cravings, and I, I always say... Um, really only half kidding that I think the people in the middle of the scale are the most dangerous. When it comes to sort of our societal understanding of obesity, overweight, food obsession, what to do about it, the people in the middle of the scale often have had their own experience with what they might call sugar addiction or food cravings or maybe they've been overweight or something but they solve that problem and then they package up whatever solution they've come to and they put it out as the answer hmm. and it's not anywhere near a potent enough solution for someone who's at 10 on that susceptibility scale. So, um, so in general, you know, I think that there's a lot of folk wisdom about how to lose weight, how to, you know, eat healthfully, how to maximize and optimize your nutrition. But a lot of it is coming from people who fundamentally have never had that bad of a food problem. Um, and so their advice about how to eat for optimal nutrition would be great if those of us who are really high on the susceptibility scale could stick to it. You know, I think a lot of people are walking around knowing that they should be eating broccoli and not donuts, Um, but being able to stick to it is a whole other story. So um, that's why I think that, you know, for a lot of people who struggle chronically with their eating and or their weight, you know, possibly both, um, following the advice of someone who's been successful and is incredibly high on the susceptibility scale, or at least as high or higher than you are, is what's important, because that's the way that you know that you're getting a solution that's potent enough.
0: Got it. So w- whenever I hear anything like that, the researcher in me always wants to um, make it jive with what I know about sort of human evolution and and biology and, and nature. So the first thing I heard was that you mentioned that this is the susceptibility to the pull of refined foods. So way back in the day when there were no refined foods, when we would just pull something out of the ground, pound it and eat it or hunt down an animal, cut it up, roast it and eat it. Did this did the susceptibility scale have any relevance? Where Where, where do you think it came from that, that there's this wide variation?
1: It's a very interesting question. And, you know, I'm I'm going to sort of um, plead lack of time machine. Like, I would love to go <laughs> back, you know, 500 years, 5,000 years, 50,000 years, and look around and see if there's anybody, like, hiding in the back of a cage, binging, binging on, you know, papayas and, you know, sweet potato roots. I, I don't know if, if people did. I imagine it was pretty rare, you know. Nothing like the pandemic that we've got going on now.
0: Right. I mean, um, I, I would, you know, sorry, I, I would think that you know the uh, the to be a ten on the susceptibility scale conveyed certain evolutionary advantages in in times of feast or famine.
1: Yeah. So here's here's. What I think the research shows on that. Um, there's some very interesting research um, by um, animal behaviorists, you know, these people who study rodents, rats, mice. Um, and forgive me if I don't always get right which experiment used rats and which experiment used mice. That's <laughs> a so mm-hmm. detail that I often forget to encode in my brain. But anyway, you know, they use rodents and they run them through mazes, or they keep them in skinner boxes, and they have to press levers to get food, and they, you know, learn certain things about behavior by studying these rodents. And what there's this fascinating research program that looks at rodents who um, are incredibly addictable, and rodents who are not addictable. And we're talking addictable to classic drugs of abuse, like cocaine and heroin. Turns out not all rodents become addicted to cocaine if you inject them with intravenous cocaine. That, that doesn't do it for all of them, but many of them do. Well, researchers wondered, what's the difference? And um, a few years ago, really not that long ago, there's a very recent research program, um, researchers did the following experiment. They took, I will just call them rats, they took rats in a cage and um, They trained them to press a lever to get food. Well, that's fine, but then they switched things up. They made it so that food would only come out of the little dish if a big lever first came down into the cage. So like a a big lever, a big bar, boom, would come, land itself in the middle of the cage, and that would signal the availability of food in the food dish. And so these rats... Fall, fall into basically two camps. Some of the rats, and as soon as the lever came down into the cage, they would run over and get food out of the food dish. And other rats, when the lever came down, they would run up to the lever and roll around on it and sniff it and kiss it. And it was like they were in love with the lever. And researchers were like, that's really weird. The lever by itself doesn't actually give the food. It signals the availability of the food. But it's basically a cue, a cue that tells you when food will be available. But these rats were so in love with that lever that when the researchers changed up the protocol a little bit and made it so that the food was only going to be available for a short period of time, maybe three to five seconds after the lever came down, the rats couldn't even tear themselves away from the lever in order to go get the food in time. That's how much they loved the lever. Now, it turns out, that the rats who love the lever are the addictable rats. And the rats who ignore the lever and run straight over and get the food, they're the non addictable rats.
0: Okay. Now,
1: if we if we think about this in evolutionary terms, what evolutionary significance would it, you know, what what evolutionary advantage, shall we say, would it confer to be incredibly enamored with or susceptible to the cues that predict reward.
0: Well you'd, well, you'd notice them more, and so maybe you'd be the eagle eye.
1: Exactly. It'd be a huge advantage, right? And you could throw it the other way, too, to the cues that predict danger. You know, the rustling of the bush that means that there's a snake back there or, a you know, the sound of something that predicts there's a cheetah, you know, running toward you or... Um, Or, you know, the the weather cues that predict that the fruit's ripening over yonder hill. You know, those are the cues that predict reward or danger, and being highly susceptible to those cues is evolutionarily advantageous. What what I think might be going on, and there's some research to support this, is that a history of hardship heightens the susceptibility to those cues, and the research that supports this is, um, the the preference for running straight for the food versus loving the lever, it turns out that that's a genetic preference. That rats who love the food give birth to rats who love the food, rats who love the lever give birth to rats who love the lever. But it goes beyond genetics, as everything always does, and there's an environmental difference, too, because if you take Mommy and daddy rats who love the food, so they're not addictable rats, they're not very susceptible to the cues that predict reward, and they mate together and give birth to a litter of little rats, and then you rip those rats away from their mommy and raise them in isolation. You can change those baby rats into rats that love the leper and are addictable. And what you've just done is, through environmental hardship, you've created a susceptibility to addiction. Huh.
0: Wow, I, I want to explore, I want to explore that, but first I can't resist um, pointing out that probably some some self help rat author wrote a book called Fifty Ways to Love Your Lever.
1: <laughs> you got me. So. I'm a big Paul Simon fan. That's cute. <laughs> oh goodness. Sorry. <laughs> so that's all right. That's cute. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I will remember that when I tell this story. Fifty ways to love your lever so, uh, so where does all this leave us? So, first of all, you know there's a genetic predisposition to addiction. I think everybody knows that there's also environmental triggers, if you will, or you know uh predispositions to addiction. I think that that rings true for many people too, and for In terms of food, where this leaves us is, if you think about what it means to be incredibly pulled in beyond your control to the cues that predict food rewards you now start to have an explanation of what might be going on with the obesity pandemic because if you're pulled in beyond your control to the cues that predict reward, it means that your car is turning involuntarily into the driving, the, the driveway with the golden arches. You're just drawn to those golden arches because that, that cue predicts rewards. It means that watching TV at night is a full errand because, you know, the commercials, with the swirling chocolate are going to pull you toward your cupboards, you know, and toward getting food that maybe, you know, your body doesn't really need. It means that, you know... You know, if you have a habit set up where you're walking down a hallway at work where there's a vending machine and, you, you you know, you know that there's a food reward available there, it's going to be very, very hard to break that habit of stopping and getting that food, you know, etc., etc., etc. Our society right now is set up so that, you know, you can hardly take a breath or walk 10 feet without being confronted by some cue that's going to predict food reward. And I just want to throw in one last thing here, which is going to feel like the, the clanging of the, the, the jail cell of eternity for a lot of people, which is that your own emotional states are cues that predict food reward. So, you know, if you're used to feeding your face when you feel bored, depressed, sad, angry, fearful, um, excited, whatever just the presence of those emotional states can be cues that send you running for food. Um, so, you know, this is why people start to eat better or diet or whatever you want to call it and, you know, with a huge, you know, willpower can keep at it for a little while but, you know, six months later, a year later, they're as fat as ever and it's because they don't have a way of getting, escaping these emotional, visual auditory, time-based, location-based cues that pull them in and they, you know, keep going back. Wow.
0: So, so th- this, this f- feels to me like sort of a, an uh, accidental height of ingratitude. Like the way you describe the people who are highly susceptible is like they're the people you'd want around <laughs> if your tribe was going through a rough patch. Like they're the ones right. most likely to to find the the hidden food supplies, to 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 warn you of danger, and and so what we've done is we've created society in which those people go through hell like thousands of times a day. That's right. Exactly right. So so one th- one thing that that struck me when um, when you were describing earlier the. Um, you know the the way our our stomachs can be full, but our brains persist, and you know we just we just look at ourselves eating, and, and we say, "I just I'm going to have one," but we have three. Um, so or so, ten or ten, <laughs> <Like> <laughs> right? This six, or, or thirty, right? Yeah, or, uh, yeah the, the the serving size is the is is whatever I happen to have within reach. Exactly. Exactly. That and and we talked about this uh, offline earlier that you know, I when I started hearing that I started remembering times when I've done that and starting to feel a little bit of red faced shame. And the, the narrative that that accompanies that feeling is something like, God, what is wrong with you? Yeah. And, you know, we talked earlier about this idea that we, we know ourselves by watching our own behavior. And so I know yeah. myself to be a person of zero integrity in these situations, right? Can, can, yeah, cause, and I found that a great relief to kind of hear you not necessarily let me off the hook, but give me an explanation that provided an alternative to I'm a worthless POS. Yeah. Can, can you, can you, and, talk, you know expand on that? Yeah. And Howard, you know, what
1: you just said, like, hits me to my core and it just raises for me what my life's mission is, which is to create an option, a a plan, a pathway out to to share the way out for anyone who is feeling that empty, hollow, red-faced shame around their eating that they know that there's a way to get your integrity back around food, to get what I like to call happy, thin, and free. And I I lived with that shame of my eating for most of my life. And, um, you know, I'm a 10 plus plus on the susceptibility scale, and I've binged in ways that most people can hardly fathom. And um, that that lack of integrity that exists when day after day, month after month, year after year, I was promising myself that I would eat one way and then I was eating another way. I was promising myself I I would stop, you know, at one serving and then I would have so many more. It it gutted me. I mean, it just flat out gutted me. And it... um, The baffling thing was that I was successful in so many areas of life. I was earning a PhD. I could run a marathon. I was happily married. I seemed so confident and successful in so many other ways, but my eating was this area of my life that was completely out of control. And um, I can make up the solution to this. I call the solution Bright Line Eating, but... You know, it came to me in the form of a 12-step program for food addiction, and someone shared it with me, and it worked, and I'd been trying everything under the sun, including other 12-step programs that hadn't worked for me. Um, And when it worked, it was like everything just clicked into place. When the bright lines were bright enough, everything clicked into place, and suddenly one day at a time, by committing what I was going to eat and then eating only and exactly that, this system created the pathway by which I could get my integrity back. And today, I trust myself around food. I, I, I no longer live in that hell of of feeling disempowered and a lack of control around food. Um, I weigh what I want to weigh. I eat the way I know it's best for me to eat, and there's sort of a, just a period at the end of that sentence, like end of story. And the fact that that is my truth today is the biggest miracle in my entire life, and I just really want to share that pathway with others. And, you know, it's not, it's not for everybody, and it's certainly not for the faint of, faint of heart. It's for people who really know that they want a way to, to get out of that conundrum, that stuck place and, you know, who really are willing to do what it takes to get happy, thin, and free. And that's my life's mission, is to share that roadmap. And I'm not at all in, like, the convincing business. You know, if somebody's like, oh, that's not for me, i say, fine. (laughs) Believe me, I'll do it for me, too. You know, like, if it's for you, then it's like there is freedom. But if it's not for you, then don't do it. You know, like, I'm I'm not here to tell anybody they should be eating according to the Bright Line Eating way. But for people who need it, it can feel like the breath of life itself, it can be just the missing piece that they never had. And that's what it was for me. So that's my mission is to share that.
0: So I know you're not shy about sharing your story. Um, I I am recalling a blog post about your, your cookie dough binge. Can you give us like a little bit of the backstory? Because so far, you know, you, you sound like you know, a scientist, very well you know, put together, a good grasp of all the research literature. And we forget that scientists are human beings and they have their own problems. Like, you know, we think of like the professor on Gilligan's Island who's got the answer to everything, but that's, that's not really how it is. Could you t- talk about your, sort of the, the human side of your, of your story and your quest?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, my, my fatal flaw has always been addiction. Um, I've just been an addictable person from a very young kid. And, um, you know, I also was heavy from a young age. You know, I think I, I was probably a normal sized kid, not skinny, but not huge until I was about 12. And then, and then I was overweight. And, um, I didn't like being overweight, and I started to try to diet, and what I found um, was the world's best diet, which was drugs, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, things like crystal meth, which just make you not want to eat at all, which I just thought was um, a, a gift from the universe straight to me. I mean, I just thought that was amazing. So I developed quite a drug problem, and um, it got worse, and I dropped out of high school and I developed a cocaine and then crack cocaine addiction, and so you know at my bottom I was a crack addict and a high school dropout, and I ended up getting clean and sober at the age of twenty, and um, just after my twentieth birthday, and my whole life changed from there. I went to community college, I went to UC Berkeley, got four point spoke at the graduation. But getting clean and sober from drugs and alcohol did not solve my food problem. As a matter of fact, you know, once I didn't have drugs as a go-to, you know, food addiction blocker, essentially, um, my eating was just as bad as ever. And that started the sort of 12-step food program round, trying to find a solution there that would match the solution that I found for drugs and alcohol. And I um, went around and around and around with no relief um, for like seven or the next seven or eight years and just getting fatter. So at that point, you know, I'm, I'm married now, I'm in graduate school, and now I'm obese. And I, I didn't even know I was obese, but I was obese. And the binges were really bad, and the eating was out of control, and um, knowing that there was freedom from addiction... In other domains, which I had experienced, you know, from drugs, from alcohol, from cigarettes, I experienced freedom. I couldn't... It it was like crazy-making that I couldn't reproduce that freedom with food. And over the years, I got clearer and clearer on the specific foods that caused me difficulty. You know, sugar was obviously a problem. And then when I took the sugar away, flour became a problem. Um, And even knowing that I couldn't get free until I joined up with some folks who really took their abstinence from sugar and flour very seriously. And in in the sort of womb of that community, I was able to get free. And um, they taught me about what I now call bright line eating, you know, and the, the four bright lines are no sugar, no flour, eating only meals, and bounding the quantities. I use a digital food scale, the Bound my quantities, um, partially to make sure I eat enough. You got to eat a lot of vegetables and a lot of you know healthy foods in order to you know um, in order to make it all work. You have got to eat a lot, a lot more of the foods that you should be eating than you probably realize. But also to make sure I don't eat too much of the, of the other foods. So. Um, so sugar flour meals and quantities those are the four primary right lines, and um, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration that they they saved my life. they certainly saved my sanity and my self esteem and I lost like sixty pounds in six months, shrank from a size sixteen to a size four, and that was um a lot of years ago that was back in two thousand three you know what twelve oh, is this may It'll be twelve years ago, so um and then, you know, I I graduated from my PhD program. I did a postdoc in Sydney, Australia. And i you know, taught at several colleges and universities around the world. And um, you know, now I'm a tenured professor at a community college in Rochester, New York, Monroe Community College in Rochester, New York, but I'm taking a leave of absence from that position because I, I'm I'm now committed to growing the Bright Line Eating movement and um, it's taking up pretty much all my time. So that's sort of the next stage of my career. But that's, you know, the human side is I'm a dope beast. It's basically it. And my, my dope of choice is sugar and flour. Um, that's basically, you know, as, as raw as it gets, that's, that's it, you know. Um, so. Wow.
0: Now, when you, when you were in grad school and you had solved your uh, known, you know, your Official drug addictions, but you were still addicted to food. You were—I assume—you were studying the brain, neuroscience. Were you looking for answers in science at that point?
1: Um, as a hobby. So yeah, I was getting a PhD in brain and cognitive sciences, and um, I don't know that in my opinion, and this is going to be sort of a cocky thing to say, but I don't know that the interesting research is really being done um, on the questions that really fascinate me, but um, I was getting a very broad education on the way the brain works, on neuroscience, um, cognitive science, psychology, and um, the specific area of expertise that I've developed has been pieced together um, over the I'm um, trying to do the math now, um, over the 15, 16, 17 years um, that I've, you know, been a brain scientist. Um, so the program I was in, and I don't think there is one that studies the neuroscience of food and the brain, um, there certainly wasn't back then in 1997. Um, so that was not specifically what I was learning. It was more, you know, I would write papers on it, you know, whatever there would be, three-choice papers. I would write on the brain and eating disorders and things like that. So it was more something that I was pursuing on my own.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so if you uh, were, were were emperor, empress, and you could direct scientific research for the next twenty years, what would what what kind of studies would you like to see? That's and and, let, and let me let me, me post preface that comment by talking about what you. Um, a wonderful email that I received from you about a week and a half ago, in which you talking about a scientist got up at a conference and basically announced, we don't know shit. Yeah. So again, yeah. And, and you mentioned that scientists really will not have the answer for most people. So what what would you like science to, to roll up its sleeves and do? Yeah.
1: Um. I would like scientists to roll up their sleeves and get really, really clear on which foods and food combinations and food behaviors cause a flood of dopamine in the brain, in the nucleus accumbens, basically, in the you know the ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens, the reward dopaminergic reward pathways. Um, There was one study that was done a little while ago, um, maybe a couple years ago, that got some good media attention that did that. And it um, offered people milkshakes that were titrated to either have high sugar content or low sugar content and high fat content or low fat content. And they put people in the fMRI scanner and um, measured... um, reaction in the nucleus accumbens, and they found that the dopaminergic neurons were lit up by sugar, but not by fat. And that's been my opinion all along. It's you know People talk about sugar, fat, and salt being the addictive substances, that there's books called sugar, fat, and salt. There's people who've written on sugar, fat, and salt, and I don't think it's sugar, fat, and salt. I think it's sugar and flour. And um, the studies that look at what are the addictive foods point to, you know, for example, pizza being in the top three most addictive foods. And I'm sorry, but it's not the sauce and cheese that are driving that effect. Sauce and cheese on broccoli might be yummy, but nobody is, like, leaving the house in the middle of the night to get a large broccoli, cheese, and sauce, you know, serving. So it's the dough. You know, it's bread, bagels. So I would like to see more research on what's driving the addiction effect in the nucleus accumbens. I would like to see more research on how long it takes and under what circumstances the downregulated dopamine receptors in the nucleus accumbens come back. Um, I heard Mark Hyman say recently that it takes three weeks. I don't think that research was done in humans. I think it was done in rodents. Um, I would like to know what you have to do specifically to allow that part of the brain to heal. So, for example, I think caffeine floods the nucleus accumbens with dopamine. Is drinking a certain amount of coffee enough on its own to impede the healing of your brain um, in the nucleus accumbens to let those dopamine receptors replenish? Here's another thing I want to know. When someone's been... um, abstinent from sugar and flour for five, ten years and they're responding normally to food as long as they stick with those boundaries. What's going on in the brain that causes one bite of chocolate or one bite of, you know, a cookie to send them off on a binge? Like what 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 is driving that effect? Um I don't believe it's purely psychological. I don't think it's just a what the hell effect. I think it's I think it's going on in the brain, so I'd like to know what's going on there. Um, and then the last thing I'll say because I'm kind of going on and on, but this is an important thing, is I really, really would like to see studies on bio-individuality and food addiction. I really think that some foods and food combinations are addictive for some people and not others. For example, salt I think is an addictive trigger for some people and not others. Oil, I think, might be an addictive trigger for some people and not others. Those fMRI, that fMRI study that I mentioned recently, that showed that that wasn't an issue. It's possible that the averaging that's done over subjects in a study like that, with that kind of design, is masking that some people might have had a heightened response and not others. Mm. So, my my personal experience with, you know, 12 years of helping people to recover from their food addictions and get thin show that for some people, some things are triggers and not others. And sort of the, the catchphrase assumption is, well, you've got to uh, abstain from your personal binge food, too. And different people have different personal binge foods. So I'd like to see some research on that. I'd just like to see food addiction taken way more seriously because in my opinion, several of the studies that have come out over the last three to four years have put the nail in the coffin of anyone who thinks food addiction isn't a biological reality. I mean, the studies have shown not a correlation but a cause. That when people eat the refined crap that consists of the standard American diet, it causes the dopamine receptors to thin out in their nucleus accumbens just like as if they were doing heroin or cocaine for all that time. It's the exact same effect. So if everyone could just stop arguing about whether food addiction is real and start discussing the ramifications of the fact that it is real. And I okay, I, I lied. I said I was only going to say one more thing, but here's the last thing, which is please start studying long term effects of abstinence from sugar and flour beyond thirty days. Yes, within thirty days you get cravings. But study us folks who've been abstaining for years. And and study the fact that, you know, we can be cutting up birthday cake for our kids and not think twice about it. It's like the the icing that gets on our hands is like paint. I just, you know, there's no urge to lick it off my hands at all. It's like I go over to the sink just to wash my hands as if I had glue on my hands. So, you know, there's some of us who've been abstaining from these foods for long enough that we have complete freedom like... Uh, someone who's quit smoking and, and has been a non-smoker for five or ten years doesn't desire a cigarette anymore. It's gone. It's been removed. And um, so the dieting literature is just in its infancy, in my opinion. All they all they say in the dieting literature is don't restrain your eating because it'll lead to a binge. Well, that's true if you're just looking at the first month, you know, week or or 30 days. Restraining your eating leads to heightened cravings. But if you pair someone up with a support system that's strong enough to get them through those 30 days, there's a lot of freedom on the back end of that. And I think that's worth telling people because the alternative is people are going to keep eating the way they're eating and they're going to go blind from their type 2 diabetes or their foot's going to be amputated or they're going to get cancer or heart disease. So we can't just let, you know, whatever percent of people, I don't know, Howard, maybe you know, 60%, 70% of people die unnecessarily from the diseases that are caused by the way that they're eating without giving them a viable option. And telling people that complete abstinence isn't possible or isn't helpful, is just a lie. And I would love to see people start to study the reality of the fact that for people who are addicted, quitting is a really viable alternative.
0: Mm. So I've, I've known people who've been in like Overeaters Anonymous, and one of the things they've pointed out is that food addictions are much trickier than drug addictions, because when you say no to cocaine, it's a it's a very bright line, you don't you know, you're you're, but but food, you have to eat something. So, um, you know, and as a researcher who has been focused on a, a sister question, but actually a quite different one is like, which foods have been shown to be harmful for humans? And the research I've done shows that there's actually not that much bio individuality around the biology of a food that there's there's basically a dietary pattern that everywhere you see it, people are healthier than and the farther they, um, you know, shift away from that dietary pattern, the more and more disease they get. But it feels like what you're what you're adding is like, rather than just a categorical good and bad it's, it looks more like a matrix. Like there's some foods that are fine in moderation, but it turns out that there's a whole bunch of people who simply can't eat them in moderation. Um, Yeah. And and for me, you know, I get a little nervous because it's it's much messier (laughs) to kind of assess. um, You know, we can't just do we can't do the same kinds of studies that we do around, you know, epidemiological studies of of eating lots of animal protein and saturated fat or sugar, and then comparing biological results. It's like the the brain is a much um, harder organ to to figure out what's going on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So I want to back up to the first thing you said, which is, you know, people say it's much harder to deal with food addiction because you have to eat and on the one hand, I agree with that. In one way, I agree with that. But fundamentally, I think that that is a smoke screen for the fact that um, a lot of people just haven't gotten clear enough about what their bright lines are. So, in my program, bright line eating, um, we define what to eat so precisely that it the. The analogy to an alcoholic or a heroin addict abstaining from alcohol or heroin is a perfect analogy. There is no confusion that someone in my program suffers from what they're supposed to eat. Like any single bite of food is clear. Is that, yes, that's on my plan or no, that's not on my plan. Like I have zero question about any particular bite of food, whether that's the first drink or whether that's a glass of water and I'm free to have it. You know what I mean? So, if, if if you're clear enough about I don't eat sugar ever, I don't eat flour ever, and I weigh and measure my food, and I only eat my three meals a day, then after you've weighed and measured your plate of food according to the food plan that you have, it's this huge, abundant, gorgeous, colorful plate of food that fills you up completely, brings you to the next meal effortlessly. But if you eat any bite of food in between those meals, that's not your food. That's picking up the that's 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 taking a shot of whiskey. So there's no, there's no confusion about what to eat on my plan. And, and I bet there's people listening right now who are thinking to themselves, that sounds crazy. That sounds like hell. Why would anyone ever do that? But I bet there's other people who are thinking, oh, that's a really good idea. And that, that sounds like freedom to me. If I knew exactly what to eat, it would help me lose all my excess weight and keep it off and I didn't have to plan or worry or wonder, and I just knew what I was supposed to eat, that would be my idea of heaven. So I think people part- part, uh, partition themselves out by, like, you know, some people really want to do this because they've suffered enough, and they don't want to be overweight anymore, and they don't want to beat their head against the brick wall and have it bleed anymore. And for other people, they don't need it and or they don't want it, and that's fine, so they don't have to do it, you know? hmm
0: so, so as as a uh, as a marketer, I have to say that this this concept of the bright line and really sticking to it categorically it kind of the opposite of the yeah. way we have been taught to right. do weight loss. That when you yeah. you know that when Total. you when you look at the you know the, uh, the, the the marketing of weight loss plans, it's basically you can lose weight and continue eating all the foods you love. Right. So could you kind of critique um, the, you know our our society's like most popular existing solutions on weight loss and kind of how they fall short or not based on your discoveries?
1: Yeah, sure. I think all of the existing solutions, major solutions that you that people would think of, major weight loss chains, will work if someone's quite low on the susceptibility scale. If someone's gained weight just out of lack of attention and, you know, eating what's around and letting themselves overheat, and now they've got 30 or 40 pounds to lose and they want to go do a national weight loss chain that's going to restrict their calories, that'll work. If you're like a 3 or a 4 on the susceptibility scale, then go and lose your weight. I think that's going to be fine. Um, If you're somebody who eats, you know, a one-point brownie and then has another, and then another, and then another. And now you're thinking, okay, I didn't mean to have four of those, but okay, now four, what do I have to do now? Do I have to go run for 30 minutes? How do I get some extra points here? At the end of the day, I was out of my points. Can I use carryover points for the week? Oh my God, I'm looking through the, you know, if that's what happens in your brain, then that national chain is not gonna work for you. Um, so I am kind of stunned, to be honest, that Bright Line Eating is having the success that it's having because I was pretty scared to put out this message of, you know what, no, you can't eat all you want of all your favorite foods and lose weight, like, duh. And you can't put a jiggly belt around your middle and jiggle, jiggle, jiggle your way to a slim physique. Like, that. it's not going to work. But what I'm finding is that people, you know, the, the average dieter tries four or five new attempts each year, and there's 108 million people spending money on weight loss solutions in the United States alone in any one year, 108 million people. And what I'm finding is that the weight loss consumer is pretty savvy and they know that that stuff doesn't work. They've tried it. They've been to Weight Watchers and and they lost some weight. And then they've gone a few years later, they lost less weight. They've gone a few years later and they lost no weight. And you know, now the thought of like redoubling efforts and going to Weight Watchers again is like, you know, there's got to be something else.
0: But at some so, point, at some point, don't people just blame themselves? Yeah. I mean, I hear this all the time. I'm, I'm weak. I have no willpower. Um, I have, I have low self-esteem. I eat for emotional reasons. And until, you know, and my life yeah. sucks or, or I'm in a bad relationship or I hate my job. And therefore, I, can- I have no control until that changes. What do you what do you say to people who, um, who feel that way?
1: Yeah, that you know the answer to that, Howard, is something that you alluded to, but we didn't flesh out earlier in this conversation, where you alluded to uh, the self perception theory, which is that you know yourself by watching your behavior, and what I've experienced from helping literally thousands of people lose their excess weight and keep it off is that. Once people start sticking to a plan of eating, most of their psychological issues and low self-esteem and all the things you just referenced get better. Maybe not all, but I would say about 80%. And, you know, usually you're left with something that you need to deal with, but the, re- the reality is that people have come to the conclusion that they're weak-willed, that they don't love themselves because they've watched themselves plan out in all earnestness a a diet and exercise regimen that they are committed to sticking to and they have watched themselves turn on a dime and decide not to eat that after all and to decide to reward themselves with getting a pizza because it's Friday night and they're exhausted and they don't want to cook dinner and then they've decided to have some ice cream after the pizza and then they've sat there with this full stomach of pizza and ice cream and thought to themselves, this was going to be the week that it was gonna be different. I was gonna finally turn over a new leaf and here I am again. And the only conclusion that that it makes sense to draw in that situation is I'm weak-willed, I don't love myself enough to treat myself well with food, you know, and fill in the blank of other, you know, I'm gross, I'm disgusting, you know, I'm a failure. And the reality is that their brain is exerting pressures beyond their control and they're drawing conclusions about their character from the results of their actions, which all they need to do is stick to, you know, do, like, adopt the Bright Line Eating Framework, learn what it is, and even just one day of writing down their food, committing what they're going to eat, and then eating only and exactly that starts to refill that integrity back and that, um self-esteem bank and that self-love bank to the point where day after day after day, I don't know, maybe a hundred days later, you're a whole new person. And the the job that was so awful and the relationship that was so awful and the self-esteem that seemed so low, it despaired of ever getting so all of that doesn't look that way anymore. And all it takes is changing the way you eat. So there's a book that came out some time ago. It's not what you're eating. It's what's getting you like trying to get people to look at their emotional issues as a way to control their eating, that if you really loved yourself, you wouldn't hurt yourself with food. And I want to say I think it's the opposite. It's not what's eating you. it's It's what you're eating. It's the food first. And once you get the food right, all the other psychological stuff straightens out. For a lot of people, food is what we call a keystone habit, which is a habit that once you establish it, makes
0: everything better, everything. So, so one other um, approach to weight loss that I'd like to talk to you about, because I know you're, you're um, heavily involved in the community, is the plant based community. And there mm-hmm. is, there's a lot of talk um, by, by vegans, by whole food, plant based people to say, you know, one of the side effects, aside from, you know, disease proofing yourself, saving the environment, um, saving animals is you'll achieve your ideal weight easily and naturally. And you don't think that's entirely true, do you?
1: I think it is for some people, people who are low on the susceptibility scale, or maybe low to moderate, you know? Um, but, um, in general, this may not be true across the board, but in general, people in the plant-based community, Um, are hearing that they can eat all they want of the right foods, you know, that as long as it's apples and butternut squash and brown rice, you can eat all you want of it Um, and whenever you want, right? Um, And I also, um, you know, there's a lot of flour often, you know, often like whole grain flour, but whole grain flour um, raises insulin levels, which then blocks leptin you know, with just about as much, uh, power as white table sugar, you know? So, um, for some people who have brains that are, um, predisposed to, um, this, you know, wiring pattern, um, What they experience, and I get a lot of people who come to Bright Line Eating from the plant-based community who say, you know, I lost a lot of weight when I first started plant-based eating, and now my weight's creeping back up, or I never got down to the weight I wanted to be. You know, I lost 60 pounds, but what about the 40 that are still lingering around? I want to get rid of this last 40 pounds, and I can't seem to do it. And we're not talking about people who've given this a half-hearted try. We're talking about people who've been doing it for five and 10 years seriously and in earnest, and then the awful thing is for some of them, they can't seem to stick to the plant-based eating, you know, they're eating plant-based, but they're going off and binging on ice cream or something, Um, you know, top of ice cream, and so here are some things that people eat in the plant-based communities that I think are not helpful for someone who's high on the susceptibility scale, dates, raisins. Agave syrup, honey, molasses, maple syrup, Whole, you know, whole grain pancakes, whole grain bread, whole grain pasta, whole grain whatever. Even, you know, frankly, it's vegan or plant-based technically to eat white pasta or white bread or white whatever, although I don't think it's within the spirit of the community. It certainly, you know, it follows the letter of the law, it's plant-based. So... Um, what eating a lot of sugar and flour and then the other thing is there's not that a lot of these plant-based approaches advocate very very low levels of protein um, and for whatever reason um, eating tons of carbohydrates and very low levels of protein seems to be triggering for people with brains that are susceptible so here you have a conundrum where people are believing in the movement, but not seeing the results they want. And in my mind, the proof is in the pudding, no pun intended. You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're still overweight and you're still feeling out of control with what you're eating, sometimes or frequently, then, you know, I don't think it's an issue of willpower. I think that something is going on in your brain. And so people adopt Bright Line Eating as an add-on to their plant-based lifestyle and you know, there's nothing in, in bright line eating that says that you've got to go eat, you know, carcass. You know, I mean, I do bright line eating, and I'm plant based. Um, so adopting additional bright lines that keep people safe from binging on excess quantities, binging on you know, date oat bars and black bean brownies, and you know, whatever the vegan organic treat du jour is. I mean, I'm sorry, but I think you know, or you know, organic. Vegan cookies are basically, you know, crack could be organic and I still wouldn't eat it, you know, or smoke it, you know. Um, So if it's triggering, then I think that there's people who need to abstain from these things, even though they're plant-based. And I think that the advice to eat all you want of the right food is advice that's very well-meaning and coming from people whose brains and physiology work differently from some other people. And so that's where then we come back to the susceptibility scale. You know, we, didn't, we haven't talked here, Howard, about leptin, which I think is, other than dopamine, which we did talk about a little bit, leptin is the other part of the brain science that I think we, people really need to hear about, which is when insulin levels are too high, it blocks the brain from seeing leptin. And leptin is the hormone that says you don't need to eat anymore. You're totally satisfied and full. And without the leptin working... People keep eating, patch the point of what their body needs and a a pure plant-based diet that's very, very low in protein is not going to be the right composition on its own without some slight modifications like getting a little more protein from more beans, you know, more nuts, more soy, more whatever. not going to be the right composition to bring some people's insulin down low enough for them to see their leptin. And when plant-based eaters get on the Bright Line Eating program, you know, their weight starts to fall off and they feel free, they feel happier, and it's like this eureka moment, like, oh my gosh, I've been struggling trying to achieve this balance and freedom and neutrality with my diet, and I just couldn't get there. Not not just by following the plant-based eating movement. There was too much. Too much quantity and too much, too many triggering foods, you know, like, like dates mashed into flour, you know, and baked in almond or whatever, you know, like that's triggering for some people.
0: Mm. So, so um, just be- before we close, I know you're, you're, uh, as a scientist, I think you're working on a, um, a kind of instrument to measure susceptibility. But until until we we have something like that, that's been, you know, scientifically validated and all that, are there sort of common sense questions that people can ask themselves and observe their own behavior to kind of peg themselves as low, medium or high?
1: Sure, sure. So, you know, one of the questions is, do I feel unsatisfied after eating or, you know, maybe three-fourths the way through a meal, do I still feel sort of a pull to eat more, even though other parts of my brain might be telling me, you know, that's probably enough, you know, do I feel lack of satisfaction? Um, If you feel that intensely and often, that's high on the susceptibility scale. If you can relate to that, but it only happens sometimes, that's medium on the susceptibility scale. And if you, you know, mostly eating makes you feel satisfied, then you're low on the susceptibility scale. So another question would be, um, do you feel a loss of control when you eat sometimes, where you're eating and... You know, you promise yourself to eat some and you find yourself eating more. Your your eating feels out of control. Again, high, medium, low. How much? Um, do you binge? There's another question for you. Um, do you feel cravings? You know, how intense? How often? Do you feel cravings for foods? You know, uh, are they strong enough to, like, get you out of the house, to go to the store, or strong enough to you know, rearrange your day to make a batch of something because that's what you've got to eat. Or, you know, how, like what, what kind of food obsession do you have? Do you feel like what you've eaten or not eaten, how much you've exercised or not exercised, uh, whether you're on or off your plan, like how much of your psychic energy does that take up? Like if you make a pie chart, again, no pun intended, are you spending more of your time on that stuff, more of your mental psychic energy than you would like to? If you find that what you've eaten or not eaten, how well you are or not sticking to your plan, is something you're thinking about a whole heck of a lot, that's high on a susceptibility scale.
0: Um,
1: I think those, those are the kinds of questions that people want to be asking themselves.
0: Gotcha. So, so then for folks who find themselves in the, the middle to high... Um, there's something about sort of just hearing about bright line eating that reminds me a little bit of, you know, Nancy Reagan's drug campaign, just say no, what and I know that you you offer a lot more beyond, you know, don't don't eat that. Um, So for folks, for folks who are feeling out of control and have resonated with what they've heard in our conversation, what's their next step?
1: Um, yeah, I do want to reassure people that I'm not here to say, stop eating sugar and flour. It's like, if I could do that, thank you very much, I'd be skinny already. You know, like, um, So I'm not here to say, just don't eat those foods. I'm here to support the people who can't not eat those foods and to say there is a way. There is a way, and the whole system works together. It's not just about white knuckles abstinence from those foods. It's certainly not. Um, and what I would say is the next step is to check out, I have a free gift that you could read. I have a report that I wrote last summer that I think you might like and it might give you a better sense of what Bright Line Eating is all about. And it's quite a a, a lengthy, meaty document. It's amazing how much food references come into our, you know, it's a meaty document. (laughs) Um, And I think think you'll love it. And you can get it, you can download it for free at happythinandfree.com. So it's happy, H-A-P-T-Y, Finn, t h i n, and a n d free, f r e e dot com, and it's totally free. Happy, www free dot com, and if you go there, all you see is um, an, a free offer to download that report, and um, you have to put in your email address, put in your best email address. It means that you'll get communications from me. All I send out is the science and practice of sustainable weight loss. If that's what you're interested in, you can be on my my email list. If you don't want to be, you can just unsubscribe at any time. It's my list. I never share it with anybody. There's 6,600 people in our community right now. Um, so you'll be in good company if you you know join the list. And if you want to get more information, that would be your best bet, is to go, go get your free gift. Go get your free download and check it out and see if what I've written there resonates more with you, you know, and I just want to reassure you, there is there is a solution. There's a way out. You know, I've been a size four now for a long, long time. I have only one size of clothes in my closet and they all fit any time of year. You know, you do not have to live anymore with battling with food and weight. It's, you know, relieving that suffering is my calling in life. So for anyone who is raising their hand right now, saying, "Yeah, Susan, that's me." You're describing me. I just want to give you a big hug and say, "You know, welcome home. You don't have to be alone with that anymore."
0: Awesome. And I and I will and I will throw in that I I have subscribed over the years to probably thousands of you know e- email um, <laughs> broadcasts and auto responders. You know, after getting the free report and. Most of them I've unsubscribed quite quickly. Some of them I, I go and I change my settings and I send them to a, you know, a, another folder in my uh, other than my inbox where I'll get to them when I can. And yours are in my inbox. First, they're, they're really well written. They are interesting. They're vulnerable. Um, you know, I even even though you know you you know about like you know leptin and dopamine and stuff like that, your your writing is extremely compelling and human, and that's what keeps me, um, you know, resonating with with your story.
1: Wow, thank you, Howard. I'm just yeah, I'm touched. Thank you. That means that means a lot. That means a lot. I believe you have subscribed to thousands of newsletters, and the fact that mine gets to land right in your inbox um, is a big compliment, so thank you.
0: Yep, well, thank you. Um, any final thoughts before we uh, we say goodbye for today?
1: Um, I just want to thank you, Howard. I, I read whole, you know, when it came out, right away when it came out, and I thought it was an amazing book, and, uh, you know, I, I reference it in one of my... Uh, emails that I send out it fundamentally and profoundly changed the way I think about nutrition and I stopped taking, you know, all this crazy regimen of supplements I was on when I read that book. And um, I just think you're doing great work. So I'm really honored to have spent this time with you. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, I feel like the the intersection of of our two uh, energies is gonna, you know, clarify a lot of things for a lot of people. You know, getting getting the brain yeah. right and getting the biology right and and getting the neuroscience right uh, all together is, uh, is, a, is a powerful combination. Yeah. Thanks, Howard. Well, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Um, I really encourage people to to check out your site. Even even if, if uh, someone's listening and they're like, well, you know, I'm low, I bet you can close your eyes and think of 30 people in your life who are high. And, <laughs> yeah. you know every every every, and and nobody wants to be there everybody wants freedom right whatever regardless of whether they want to be a size four everyone wants to be free
1: yep that's right and happy thin and free i think free is the most important part you know i talk about weight loss because i think a lot of people are searching for that but that's the surface issue that's the surface issue and the real work starts when you get down to goal weight you know um the real key is freedom and you know i I've got 353 people who signed up for the latest Brightline Eating Boot Camp, and a lot of them were posting in the online support community that they were feeling free after just a few days. You know, things click into place really quickly um, when you get the food right. You know, like I said, it's a keystone habit. It affects everything. It affects sleep. It affects sex drive. It affects energy levels. It affects self-esteem. It affects, you know, household chores. Completion <laughs> affects everything. So, you know, everything gets right when the food is in place. So, um, yeah, so I, I agree. I, I hope people sign up if they've been resonating with what we've been talking about. And again, it's happythinandfree.com. So I hope to see you online.
0: Awesome. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great talking to you.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Howard. Bye bye.
0: Take care. I hope you got a lot out of that interview with Susan Pierce Thompson. I urge you to check out happythinandfree.com to get her free report. She is a great writer. A lot of scientists that I work with in interview aren't such good writers. They've got interesting material, great ideas, but it really takes a lot of hard work to understand them. Not with Susan. She really writes in a very personable fashion. I urge you also to check out her blog. Both of those are linked in the show notes for this episode. And she tells some really vulnerable stories about one of my favorites is her cookie dough binge. Um, There's just there's just a lot of really deep material. And if you are struggling with with weight issues and with food issues, uh, you'll recognize her as a kindred spirit at once. Upcoming shows. Next week, I talk with Ben Chesler, an entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur, who is using his smarts to help solve our food crisis. The, uh, the issues of hunger and food waste. And then coming up after that, I have the 99th and 100th episodes of the podcast. And I'm keeping those under wraps for a little bit. It's a couple. It's folks who I am very inspired by. And we haven't finished the second interview yet. So I don't want to jinx it. But uh, stay tuned. And with that, as always, be well, my friends.